usually wait for the tubas. Hi, everybody. It's Jean Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations. And I, I just have one of my favorite, most interesting people in the city of New Orleans who I've known essentially since I came here some years ago. I mean, it's really half a century, you know, basically. Um, and he has written a book called The City of America of, of a Million Dreams, History of New Orleans at Year 300. Now, you may share with me a little bit of a yawn about the 20, uh, tricentennial. I mean, it really has not been, uh, for me, one of the most exciting, um, I don't know how to say it, um, programs about a city um, ever. Um, but it is exciting to live in a city that's 300 years old in America. Uh, what's really exciting is to learn about how we came to be and um, all of the really complicated, crazy permutations that in so many ways are reflected by the city as we kind of, sort of know it today. And it's really hard to know New Orleans. And I have so many visitors that I entertain who come to the city and they fall in love with it and they say, oh, I want to come here and work. And I said, okay, fine. If you're really entrepreneurial, come on. I said, we're not a city of a million jobs on every corner, but we certainly are one of the most special places in, on, the, on the globe. So Jason Berry is my guest and the author of the book. And... Um, I have uh, been reading the book. It's very dense with fact and uh, perspective and color and just, I mean, I'm one of those curious people who every detail fascinates me and every uh, last name that I know somebody with that last name today fascinates me. So um, I'm crawling through the book, but then I just had to kind of sprint through it and pick out a few uh, little gems, and we're to, we're going to just start today because I think we're going to have at least a part two, if not a part three, uh, to talk through this because it is three hundred years for goodness sake. Yeah, maybe we'll make it three shows. Okay, Jason, of of all the things that you learned in the process of studying and and researching and writing this book, what are kind of the top threads in the fabric? of the city's history that strike you as so pervasive and important that they really do figure in today's city? Well, thanks for having me on, Jean. It's always a pleasure. I, I would like to give a plug for readability, although it might seem dense. In fact, I did a lot with the footnotes, so I think the narrative does move at a good I, pace. I love the way you did your uh, your <laughs> references. You worked them in very smoothly so it yeah. isn't – uh, it doesn't read like some kind of academic text thank, at all. Thank it's, you. It's very novelistic. Thank you. I tried to achieve that. Um, funerals, really, are at the top of the list. Isn't that something? Isn't it mm -hmm. something indeed? Uh, I began the research many years ago trying to understand where jazz funerals began. How did they arise? Mm -hmm. You know, the city is known the world over as the cradle of jazz, and jazz funerals have a, a mystique and allure 
about them. And the more I dug, if you will, in uh, trying to track down the earliest sources for funerals with music, as the early jazz men before television called them, I realized that in order to understand the funerals, you had to understand the city. And so I went all the way back to Bienville and tried to uh, understand how the early settlers, the Africans who came enslaved, the French uh, Canadians who came down as explorers and soldiers, and the others who, uh, the Indians who were already here, how, how they viewed the rituals of death. And I was frankly fascinated by the way in which these different peoples had their own traditions. Um, I argue in the beginning of the book that the city's beguiling personality has really been shaped by a long tension between a culture of spectacle and a city of laws. The culture of spectacle really rooted in the Congo Square dances by the African-blooded peoples who came over many generations and the city of laws that for most of our history was anchored in white supremacy and did change, of course, under the federal court rulings in the 1960s. But really, you know, for much of the history of the city, spectacle has pushed against the official city, forcing changes that eventually happened. And that's what struck me and riveted me. So uh, I've always been fascinated by the history of Congo Square, um, which is where much of the spectacle, so-called, took place, which was really an expression of um, heritage culture on the part of slaves and free people of color, right? Uh, well, I, I wouldn't quite go that far. Okay. Um, Congo Square, in its infancy, was called Place du Congo in, in the early French period, in the mid-1750s. And from the various accounts of the earliest ring dances, circular dances, and there are quite a number of accounts of them, it becomes pretty clear that these were burial choreographies to the ancestors. Uh, throughout uh, the map of sub-Saharan Africa, according to Sterling Stuckey, a historian in his great book Slave Culture, you find that wherever the ring was performed uh, by uh, dancing uh, and masked and costumed peoples of Africa. They were uh, paying homage to the elders, to the ancestors. It was a different spiritual uh, cosmology. It was a, a world of the living, the dead, and the unborn all sort of entwined together, very different from the Christian view of uh, people on earth, you know, striving to get to the afterlife. And so as these dances took root, as they were transplanted in New Orleans by enslaved peoples who were doing everything, everything they could to hold on to these ties to the mother culture, what evolved was a, a uh, public space that had initially been a makeshift marketplace where the Africans were allowed to sell whatever they had uh, hunted or fished or cultivated or made or fabricated with their own hands because in the early decades uh, of the French uh, colony, uh, the planters were having trouble feeding their slaves, feeding their human property. And so they gave them, and this was embedded in the Code Noir, they gave them the freedom on Sundays to have these places for relaxation. 
And over time, the dancing became so prominent and present and, and powerful in its presence. And you find this nowhere else on the North American continent that uh, the the movement of peoples to music and to the transplanted instruments of the African instrumental family spills out of that original space, which, of course, today is contained in Louis Armstrong Park. But if you go back to the late 1700s, the rampart was the the mud and log encased wall that ran along the back of the town. Of, and, front, of, front, well, of what is now the French Quarter. Exactly. Or Carré. Exactly, yeah. precisely. And it, in, in any event, the dancing continued along the levees and in areas where it was technically proscribed, prohibited, uh, but they couldn't stop it and the tradition grew. They couldn't stop it or they didn't really want to is the feeling I was getting from what I was reading. Uh, well, that's that's a good take on it. Uh, the argument I make is that the dancing became part of a cultural passageway. And when I say dancing, I mean the music, I mean the, the, the rhythms of people in these rings. But more so than just ring dances, uh, what you find after the Louisiana Purchase in the early 19th century is a mushrooming tradition of people in costumes and using a range of instruments. Uh, the architect Benjamin Latrobe, in a famous diary passage, writes about that. So is, it was the costuming that we, I think, usually, uh, I don't know, it's complicated, right? <laughs> if, sure. if there's any word that applies to everything we're talking about, it's complicated. Uh, and in fact, every time somebody, I, I have a lot of visitors to the city, and, mm. and I'm always saying it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> That's my. But um, a lot of people think of the costuming in conjunction with the parades and and the crews and the European traditions, and there is there is a European thread also in the costuming associated with Mardi Gras, say in Venice and 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 especially Mediterranean related places, but totally separately or not. Who knows? I don't know where the costuming and the and the dancing traditions of Europe come from, because that could very well have come out of Africa as well. But but this 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 these two different um uh Cultural fact coming streams. together. Yeah. Right? Well uh, Carnival was a, a high point of the winter season for the plantation aristocracy and uh, going back into the French era and, and gaining momentum uh, into the Spanish colonial period, the latter part of the 18th century, and, and again increasing into the 19th century, you have uh, an aristocracy uh, that considered dressing in costumes and finery uh, with bands for dancing in elaborate uh, homes or in balls or public spaces. This was a way that people identified themselves as uh, heirs to a European tradition and sensibility, and they tried to recreate that and in many ways did in New Orleans. The African ritual psyche was different, as I've just described, but at the same time, there was a lot of, uh, I don't want to say commingling between the two, because the racial laws were, were strict and in many ways brutal. But there was commingling anyway. Well, I think what you find is that uh, the African uh, capacity for adaptation and improvisation looked at these European or Creole descendants of France and Spain 
and decided to utilize uh, the costumes, the movements, uh, some of the movements, and the instruments, of course, um, that the slaveholders had. And so, you know, when people use the term Creole, it, it's a term. It's a, complicated. It's almost like an accordion <laughs> in its many, many uh, notes. But Creole, at a very core level, I mean, Gwen Hall, in her great book, on, on Louisiana slavery says that the first use of the term criolla is from the Portuguese, meaning a slave, an enslaved person uh, born in the New World. What you find, I think, what anyone... I, I, I know somebody from Uptown White Society who would t- really take big issue with that. There's a woman, I'm not going to name her, but when I first came to the city, and that that's how I understood the word Creole, and she says, excuse me. And she went into a whole thing about how Creole just meant that you were born here in the colony, but your parents were from Spain or France or Portugal. Yeah, I knew a lot. So, of, I mean, there's a whole lot of. I, I knew a lot of people like that growing up. So and that's not true. Well, <laughs> the first use of the term, as I just said, came from the Portuguese, and I gave you the source. Look, people have used that term over time to mean what they want it to mean, but the understanding of these uh, French and Spanish transplants uh, was that the word applied to them. But by the time you start reading slave, uh, the ads for runaway slaves in the local press starting in the early 1800s, they refer to Creole slaves. So it was obviously a, a word of elastic properties, and I'll leave it at that. Okay. We could go on. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of elastic properties, let's talk about second lining because, sure. um, you know, uh, th- that's another sort of uh, thing that we, uh, there's all kinds of um, interpretations of where that came from. And there's the the shorthand version, and then there's the longhand version. And it sounds like the longhand version, again, has the, some European as well as African roots. So let, let, talk to me about, let's say, processions, okay? Processions of various kinds uh, trigger the second line. That's true, and I, I give a, quite a number of examples of that in the book. But I would I would answer it in this way, almost in a symbolic context. If you think about the ring dances of African memory and how the slaves were uh, fortifying the uh, ritual archetype of dancing in circles, and then you think simultaneously of the long linear tradition of military bands processing through the city, uh, ennobling the prominent dead, the generals and politicians. What happened? Is that what those processions were usually about? Yes, yes. In so fact, they were also funeral related. Well, many of them were, yes. In fact, the first one I write about in some length is the procession for Carlos III, the King of Spain, in 1789. It's an amazing story. But wait a minute, let me, I, I just want to unpack what I was saying in response to your comment about second lines, Gene. So what you have by the end of the 19th century is two traditions coming together, the ring and the line. The ring dances of African memory are now opening out. Congo Square, as it was known in the early part of the century, has changed. The city is trying to take it over and restrict Africans from dancing there. And now the movement of uh, African-blooded peoples into the ranks of brass bands and marching bands is changing the military repertoire of those bands. 
And people are falling in behind those bands to dance and move in the streets. And one thing I picked up that uh, from my reading so far, so limited, was that one of the reasons why there were people of African blood in the parades is because they were in the military and they were in the military because there weren't enough white men. And so you had both French and Spanish conscripting slaves or former slaves to be in the military. That blew me away. Well, yeah, that, that's true in shorthand. I would put it this way. Um, going back to Bienville, uh, they needed they needed military defense. They needed military protection, and they offered quite a number of enslaved Africans the chance to earn their freedom by uh, fighting against Indians, by going after uh, maroons or runaway slaves, and gradually... Or by fighting off one nationality or another, the French or the... Or the primarily the British. They were trying to keep the British out of here, right? Well, yes, they did. Uh, that came a little later. In fact, the okay. British were in league with the Chittimacha Indians from present-day North Mississippi. Uh, we could get into a whole discussion about Indian slaveholding. Well, we're going to do that, too. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, uh, to, to, to just finish out the thread, by, by the uh, 1780s, when the Spanish are in control, there is a generation of black soldiers who have gained prominence uh, within the military culture of the Spanish, and they earned distinction and they got accolades uh, uh, from the King of Spain through uh, first Governor Galvez and then Governor Miro. So what what you had in the city at that time was a substantial presence of black soldiers. This did make uh, the white aristocrats uneasy because they were always fearful of slave revolts. Ironically, a number of these soldiers were themselves slaveholders. Slave slave mm -hmm. uh, all of this really begins to change after the Louisiana Purchase when Governor Claiborne uh, is appointed by Thomas Jefferson, and he doesn't really know what to do with these black soldiers. Uh, who eventually do fight in the Battle of New Orleans and play a distinctive role. With Jackson. With, oh, absolutely Jackson, with Jackson. Who comes in and, and he basically supersedes Claiborne in a way because the French weren't all that interested in protecting their property, it seems like. Well, it was a little more complex than that. As but, always. Uh, Jackson is a force of nature. Jackson comes in and declares martial law. By this time, uh, Claiborne has done his own sl uh, saber rattling, and they're mustering, you know, troops to fight against the British. The most interesting thing to me about Jackson is how ferocious he was as a warrior, and yet after the war, he did not deliver on his promise to many of the slaves to free them. To free them, yeah. Uh, people in politics who promise lie and don't come through. We have some recent experience with that as well. Well, I, I think... The In fact, there's been a lot of comparison <laughs> of, of, of Trump to Jackson, isn't it? Uh, oh, my God. Trump doesn't even hold a candle to Jackson. Jack, oh, really? Jackson's a saint compared to Trump. Don't don't put in the quarter on wait, Trump. Wait. I'll give you who, 10 who's, CDs. Who's the saint? Who's the saint as oh, compared oh, to Oh, oh, oh. Look, Andrew Jackson, for all of his flaws, and, and certainly what he did to the Indians is terrible, but he did forge... Uh, he forged an identity that became 
Im- embedded in the American psyche, the whole pioneer expansion. And, and look, there is a lot on both sides of that statement. We, we could, but it's Trump. Uh, what do you want me to say about Trump? We're not going to do that right yeah, now. Yeah, there's no, no sense. Wait, let, I want to talk about my book. It's much more say, important it's than complica- Donald Trump. It's complicated enough without getting into that. We, we can save that for another time. I want to talk about the Native Americans, the Indians. So what I got from both your book and also um, from uh, Larry Powell's book is th- th- those folks were no innocents. They were at war with each other way before we got here, and they – were masters at manipulating the Europeans as much as the Europeans were manipulating them. Is that wrong? I'm not quite sure I would uh, agree with the masters of manipulation, but I think it's important to to remember something. Bienville, the founder of New Orleans, was covered in snake tattoos. I know. I love that whole uh, image. And and he had his body. We need to get that guy who played Hamilton. What's his name? Oh, the guy from New York. We need him to come and do uh, (laughs) Bienville. Go ahead. I'd be happy to write the script. Uh, (laughs) Bienville had this body art of serpents upon his body. Which was an... Which was a Native American tradition, right? Absolutely. It was his, so he picked that up. It was his way of showing the Indians that he could fight as fiercely as they. And as part of his strategy for survival, he had to rely on the area tribes, the Choctaw, the Bayagula, the Mogolusha, the Kalapissa on the other side of Lake Pontchartrain. He needed them for to anchor the food chain. And say what you will about Bienville's sa- savagery, and there's a lot of it. I mean, he's like a character out of Joseph Conrad, uh, out of like Lord Jim or, or Heart of Darkness. But for all of his battles and literally taking of heads against Indians, he was also engaged in a struggle for survival that included certain of these small Indian nations, uh, like the Chittimacha, excuse me, um, Choctaw? Well, he had the Choctaw and, and, uh, the Bayagula, the Homas. He, 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 he forged ties with these, uh, tribal, uh, enclaves, you might say. And at the same time, he took the battle out to the exterior, trying to keep, um, uh, trying to keep the Chittimacha from coming down. And although he lost those wars, he, he was beaten back, but the city was not invaded by Indians under his long tenure. So you, you have to look at him. And the, the other thing about the Indians to bear in mind, and that's a large term, the Indians, but if you consider the Natchez, who were the most fearsome of the tribes that he had to deal with, 250 miles north up the river by the Red Bluffs, um it it was a an empire it was like a cult they had human sacrifices of infants for their funerals you compare the burial traditions of the french and what these men thought we know this from the diaries that have come down to us through time i am not someone who argues that native americans have not been victimized it is there it is one of the stains of american history as is slavery but but there is an extraordinary complexity to how this city and this state gradually uh, found its identity. That was an interesting segue. Thank you, and I'm not running for office. <laughs> 
from 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 uh, talking about a, a savage funeral rights to um, you know how we became Look, who these, we are. These people were dying. These people, the, the epidemics of smallpox wiped out almost twenty percent. Smallpox was coming from the Europeans. Uh, of course, no yeah. one knew it at the time. But yes, they, they brought. Didn't, no. no, they didn't. They brought epidemics. Uh, you know, by by the early seventeen hundreds, uh, almost a quarter of the Native American population of the Gulf South was dead or dying. One of the things that Bienville and his brother Iberville saw on their first trip up the Mississippi were communities of Indians who could not bury their dead fast enough. So all of these people are circling one another, and the one kind of common thread of ritual they had was dancing, and the other was burials. Phew, <laughs> is kind of what <coughs> I, I, I feel about it. Um, the dancing, <coughs> of course, is still such a big part of our life in New Orleans. Um, I'm a, a former dancer uh, as a performer mm. and a modern dancer, and I was actually a kind of um, surprised and disappointed in a way that dance was not a more respected art form here. Because, again, I think dance in New Orleans in a certain way, although it is such a powerful part of the culture and it is a powerful part of life, in terms of recognizing it as a fine art, so to speak, um, uh, it's not, not so much as music for one, and, for, and particularly, even though the two, you would think, seem to go together. Well, wait, hold on. I'd have to, to with all due respect, take exception to that because okay. if you're talking about ballet, that doesn't really come No, in. I'm not talking about well, ballet. Well, look, if you look at the history of balls in this city, and I'm not talking about, you know, Comus and Rex uh, on Mardi Gras, not. I'm talking about the public gathering of different people with orchestras. It is a long tradition uh, going well back to the beginnings of the 19th century. And there's a, a line quoted in almost every history of New Orleans. There is a man from Saint-Domingue, Haiti, who has just come to the city, and he's agog at what he sees. They dance in the country. They dance in the streets. They dance everywhere. The balls were such um, dynamic public events that Claiborne, as this Arabist governor, finds early after the Louisiana Purchase, there are fisticuffs, people fighting at balls because one group wants them to play French songs, another group wants the Spanish songs, and here come these you know English-speaking folk getting off their flatboats, some of them wearing decent clothes, and and they're all practically brawling about what language will be sung as the uh, bands play. So dance is elemental to understanding how this city evolved. I don't disagree with you at, uh, at that at all, because that's what I said, that it's, it's, it's an integral part of life in a way. Culture in general in New Orleans is an integral part of life in a very different way from cities that honor it and bestow it with um, a, a, a higher level of respect as a result of the performance of it and the exhibition of it on stage and in galleries. You don't, 
you don't have that same respect, which, by the way, I consider to be a very important factor in why we do not support the culture and the creative industries and the arts of this city the way some do, despite our incredible resources and, and talent and creativity and brand of, of being such an important cultural place. And I, I attribute it in, in part to the fact that it was such a natural part of everyday life here, and so it doesn't emerge as a respected art form. Well, that's a lot, a lot to, to bite off and chew. Uh, I mean, I'm not an authority on, on philanthropy or, uh, you know, the state of the symphony or, or the ballet, although they seem to be doing pretty well. Let me just say that, I, I say this on almost every show, we are about 26th in the nation in support for the arts. And we in New Orleans have work from uh, uh, less than a million dollars and um, – uh, other cities in the country uh, of, of approximate similar size with a lot less cultural legacy than we have um, usually are working with 10 million and above. So, I mean, I, I still am trying to understand that and figure out how to change that attitude and policy. And I still think that because it was such a natural part of life here, that it was it, it wasn't and still isn't supported the way it should be. I'm not in a position to debate you. I haven't done that research. The book I wrote is an attempt to understand the roots. Not only the roots, but how the city evolved. And as I say, the core theme of this book is this culture of spectacle constantly pushing against the city of laws and eventually the city coming around. And, and look, it really happens. You see it so clearly in the battle over the, the monuments. Uh, when, when Mitch Landrew decided to take down those uh, four Confederate uh, Monuments. Uh, he did so at, at the prodding of Winton Marcellus. And as I say in the book, at this point, the city really changed sides and got on the right side of history because the monuments went up in a time of rampant white supremacy with no people of color uh, having the vote or the approval of them. And so I, I tend to take the long view. Cities evolve uh, the way people do, the way families do. And where we are today, I think, is in a much better space than we've been in quite a long time, even with your friend Trump as president. Mm -hmm. So um, let, let me uh, just uh, – we're going to run out of time pretty soon. And as I said, we're going we're gonna to go on to part two and three on this discussion. But I do just want to touch on one thing that I got from your book um, uh, to the extent that I've delved into it and I still have a lot of a ways to go. And But other, I've read a lot of history about New Orleans. And one thing that I've picked up over and over again is that there has been no government, whether it was by the French, by the Spanish – by the English that was loved or appreciated by the people? Well, it changes in different periods. Um, you got to realize that f for the first, nearly the first century of the city's existence, it was a colonial colony, first of the French, then of the Spanish, that paid adherence to a distant king who never set foot in the city. Uh, Count Punchatrain in the Versailles Palace, to whom Bienville had to write these long, 
pleading reports, all but begging for money because he was so uh, financially, uh, you know, strapped. Sh- yeah, strapped. Uh, and of course, Pontchartrain never set foot in Louisiana. Neither did the king. Neither did uh, Carlos III of Spain, for whom they had a lavish funeral. People living in that kind of environment are not going to develop a love of government. On the other hand, the Spanish did a pretty good job. The terrible fire of 1788, when three-quarters of the city burnt to to a crisp uh, within the space of six hours, saw one of the massive uh, rebuilding programs in the city's history under Governor Miro, and so much so that a visiting English journalist pronounced New Orleans one of the best best governed cities he had ever seen. <laughs> I don't know how often that's been said since, but, um, you know, how people relate to their governance is a, a marvelous topic to explore. I was much more interested in this book in writing how people lived their daily lives and how they got through and the kinds of rituals, the food ways, but particularly uh, the the music and rites of worship that held this city together in a fabric. I mean, you look at someone like Mother Catherine Seals in the 1920s. This is a woman who was illiterate. She had a huge compound in the Lower Ninth Ward. She hired uh, musicians to come and play with her. Uh, Harold Dejan, who went on to lead the Olympia Brass Band, played in her tent revival meetings as a as a boy. So did Ernie Cagnoletti, who had a distinguished career, went on to uh, uh, Preservation Hall. In fact, his daughter shared with me, Anne Cagnoletti uh, was most helpful, sharing with me a family history. Three of the Cagnoletti siblings of that generation, her father's generation, met the people they would marry in Mother Catherine's compound. She took in... Not Where was it, exactly? It, it was on Flood Street. Uh, near, well, if you go down present-day Claiborne Avenue across the bridge, you go down about maybe a half a mile, two-thirds of a mile, and you find Flood Street and take a left. I mean, it's now... Take a left to, towards the lake. Yeah, correct. Okay. Uh, it is now, of course, a neighborhood, but there's still... Uh, areas of it uh, that are sort of open field. In fact, Ryan Gray, uh, an anthropologist, archaeologist at UNO, has done uh, wonderful research there. But she took in homeless women. She took in battered women. She took in pregnant girls, teenage girls. She took in families who were impoverished. And she created a settlement around the personality of herself uh, she is one of the most mesmerizing figures in New Orleans history, in my view. I can't wait to read more about her because I didn't get to her yet. But um, uh, we're going to have to uh, um, uh, halt and, and get my gal Anna Timmerman in here um, to uh, pick up uh, the strands and talk about the landscape of New Orleans in the winter. Um, but before we do that, uh, let me just uh, close with this one quote that um, for me was a great sort of summary of what it must have been like here, and, and still is in many ways. Uh, and I forget whose quote this was, but uh, this person, you probably know who it is, described uh, uh, the city at, 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 at his first exposure to it as a raffish city of many colored peoples speaking different tongues. 
And aren't we still that way? <laughs> we are indeed. I think those are my words. Okay. Anyway, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Um, you have a couple readings coming up. I do, you? yes. I'm going to be uh, speaking and signing uh, next Monday at uh, Medry Country Day School uh, at the library at 6 o'clock. And then the following Saturday, the 8th, I will be noon at Trinity uh, Church and School uptown and then at 2 p.m. a week from Saturday at the Historic New Orleans Collection. Okay, well, we need to get you downtown and uh, get you into some of our uh, – you need to come talk in Treme and I'm, you need to come talk in the 7th Ward. I'm happy so, to. So let's let's get that organized. Jason Berry, you see why I said he's one of the most interesting people um, I've ever known uh, in the city. And um, as I said, we, we've just begun. We've just – I mean, we've just – We've just opened the door, and uh, we're going to continue. Thank you so much, Jason. All right. we um, I have uh, Anna Timmerman, who I, I really want to come and visit with us um, occasionally, periodically, because um, uh, I, I'm one of those people who love gardens and landscaping. I'm also one of those people who has what I, I call a brown thumb. I don't have a green thumb. I can't. Plant or prune to save my life. All I can do is water and weed. That's about the extent of my skills. <laughs> However, I happen to have bought a property kind of a while back in Treme when I could have a little bit more land than is typical around a house. So I've got a responsibility but my responsibility this past winter had to yield to the aggressive um, life force of my Chinese fan palms. <laughs> yes. Because I lost a lot of things that couldn't make it through mm-hmm. that cold winter. And the, 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 the fan palms, for the most part, and not entirely, because a lot of them that I thought were fine started showing these little rings of... Mm-hmm. A disease or unhealth, I don't know what. And, um, you know, I've had to cut those guys out. And uh, I've been very trepidatious about how to do that, very fearful, because cutting palms is not like cutting anything else, especially the kind of palms that kind of grow up and you can't really prune them mm-hmm. in the way you prune other things. So I want to talk about that because I can't not talk about that. And, and my <laughs> garden, If you, I know you saw it, but if you saw it now, it is just like, a whole um, kind of understory and overstory of palms, mm. okay? But the thing that uh, has always fascinated me about New Orleans and that I think is a kind of under um, – uh, nobody really comments as much about our, our landscape when they're talking about the beauties and a reason to visit here. But for me, to be in a city in November and December – and instead of everything turning bare and gray, <laughs> new colors are coming out of things that, that flower in the cooler weather here in the yes. winter. is just awesome. <laughs> it's I don't blessing. use that word the way a lot of people use it. I only use it when I really mean it. It is totally awesome. Tell me about that and, mm-hmm. and, and why that happens here and um, how do we promote it? How do we support it? Well, I'm glad you brought it up because the camellias are about to pop very, very soon. The camellias, because the sanquas yeah, I know the are, are, out. are already out. Um, but, and that's a form yep. of camellia. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yep, that's yeah. the smaller version. Um, but yeah, we really are 
you know, sort of blessed here in the wintertime because we have this whole other growing season that most part of the country does not have. Um, and a lot of things that looked kind of sad and tired maybe through the summer are recovering. Like roses are a perfect example. My roses quit in August. They look terrible. They look absolutely gorgeous right now. <laughs> so we get to enjoy them for a second time this year. But um, we do have a lot of different things in the landscape that are sort of coming into their own. The Arncor azaleas that bloom three times a year. There's by the way, in Jason, Jason's book, mm-hmm. He credits the French with having brought azaleas here yes, from yeah. Europe, and that's, yeah. I didn't. That was the first time I knew that. Yeah, there's yeah. Um, there's actually some pretty good uh, books that have been written about gardens in particular in New Orleans. Uh, Lake Douglas has one out. Um, there's a couple uh, that document sort of the time period in the chronolo- chronological history of the nursery trade here and when things were imported. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the wealthy planter class. Of course, they w- were usually married and had a wife, and they would be interested in having the best garden possible. So there was a lot of importing of plant material from all over the world, not just Europe, but South Africa, Asia. Asia. A lot of our lot plants in the landscape are actually from Asia. Camellias. Yeah, camellias yeah. being one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. So it is kind of interesting. You can actually, you know, look that information up and see. Oh, some of these things have been around for 200 years or more. <laughs> um, I, I didn't uh, announce Anna uh, um, who you actually are. I didn't give you your title, so just throw that out before we continue. Yeah, um, I'm Anna Timmerman with the LSU Ag Center. I'm one of the horticulture agents, and I cover uh, the four parish area here in the metro area. So. And uh, uh, we read your column often in Inside Out from the Times Picayune. Yep, Times yep. Picayune, and then also uh, the Advocate. Also, you're so, in both. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's a good that's a good thing to be when you have two papers in a city. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, um, all right, so we have azaleas that are going to come out really mm-hmm. around, what, February? Yeah, they're going to really put on their show um, in February, but some of the encore azaleas, the repeat bloomers, are actually starting to really look good. Uh, so um, that's what it is, because mm-hmm. I've noticed they they bloom um, in the yard next to mine, mm-hmm. the house next to mine. They have azaleas popping yep. out right now. I don't have it because I have so much, again, Palm <laughs> shade, deep shade. shade. <laughs> yeah. That things are a little slower to mm-hmm. pop out on on my property, yeah, but um, I've noticed that around town you see little um, yeah, little pops hits. of color. Yeah, yeah, yep. and it's, this is an excellent time too. People always forget that we should actually be gardening right now, even though it's cold. Um, there's some bedding plants that you could put into your yard. Um, like violas, pansies, snapdragons. Now is a great time to put those things in. And well, those are annuals, right? Yeah, those are our annuals. So you have to constantly yep. put those in again well, and not if you annual. do them now, if you put them in now in November, you know, end of November, early December, a lot of these things will actually bloom into June. So you oh, so actually do get almost a, a good season. six months right. of color. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, and uh, dianthus is another good example. If you like What's that, What's a dianthus? Color. I'm not familiar uh, with that. It's an old-fashioned flower. Um, they come in pinks, whites, kind of like a cherry color. Uh, they're maybe, let's see, 8 to 10 inches tall usually, kind of like a little low mound. Um, they are kind of a nice cottage flower. Um, uh-huh. Some other ones would be uh, delphinium and foxglove. I, I, you know, I love delphinium mm-hmm. and foxglove from pictures in fairy tale yeah, books. Yeah, yep, right? exactly. But I, I've never, I, I don't see them around the city that they much. They aren't that common. Um, we actually have them on our super plant list. LSU Ag Center publishes a list of plants that work throughout the state, and uh, there's oh, a wait, couple where of do you, them. Oh, wait, where do you see that? Where you can you? find that on our website, and we actually just updated the super plant section, so it's lsuagcenter.com. 
lsuagcenter.com. Go yep. ahead. And then there's a search bar on that homepage, and uh-huh. you just type in super plants. Okay. And there's this whole other section of the website that'll um, show you pictures and t- tell you how to grow these different things. Oh, great. Because, yeah. you know, I, I buy garden books like crazy. <laughs> the non-gardener buy, buys garden books. And then yeah. I show them to people who I hope will execute some of it because mm-hmm. uh, again I'm, I'm just not that good at it yeah so um okay so definiums and uh foxgloves you fox actually glove. put them in now and you'll get a big show in the springtime and into summer so right. it's a little bit a slower process with those two things in particular but things like snapdragons the little sorbet violas they have a lot of color you can kind of tuck them in wherever if you've got some hanging baskets that have sort of languished or some some pots or containers even where you can enjoy them, just kind of, you know, get a couple flats, mix the colors and, and pop them in for the next six months. What um, what's that little uh, white flower that uh, is so um, uh, has such a beautiful uh, scent at this time of the year for Christmas that we often you know, have uh, potted in our homes. Is that, that the uh, paper whites or the paper amaryllis? Whites. Yeah. And what's yep. the other one? Paper whites and is another one. Uh, amaryllis is the, the bigger one. Well, the big yeah, red. The trumpet. Uh, yeah, no, red. I'm talking about the, um, yep. oh, because uh, I miss the lilies of the valleys of the oh, north. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. one. Of the, there's only certain <laughs> things about the north that I miss. And lily of the valley mm-hmm. and um, lilacs. Yes. And peonies. Yes, I really peonies miss suffer flowers. here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've actually talked to a gardener who considered air conditioning a greenhouse so she could grow peonies <laughs> here and i don't think it would quite work or it might be very expensive <laughs> in the process but I, yeah i can imagine yeah mm-hmm. okay so um what should uh, let, let's talk more about what you can be planting mm-hmm. now yeah. and, and the other thing uh, are i've never been good at vegetable mm-hmm. gardening my, yeah. my mother was was you know she was such a farm girl from <laughs> pennsylvania mm-hmm. and um she used to work my aunt's gardens in jersey mm-hmm. we were new city people my relatives used to ask me for my passport when <laughs> we went to to uh and jersey's such a garden uh, mm-hmm. state so um she she somehow found and and stimulated or supported the growth of some latent tomato plants yeah. in my yard that yeah. I didn't put in. Mm-hmm. They, they were just volunteer. there from <laughs> whenever. Well, it's, it's definitely too cold for tomatoes, um, but there are a lot of things you can be putting into your vegetable garden right now. Uh, lettuce, radish, turnips, um, any of the, what we call the coal crops, so broccoli, Brussels sprouts, kale, cabbage, um, Anything like that, it's a great time to start. Is there a section in your on your website about these guys? Yeah, too? yep, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you can find what do you call this, that? Uh, that would just be through the vegetable section. So if you okay. go to the website, there's all these little tabs. You but can isn't hit. it take? I mean, doesn't mm-hmm. growing vegetables take a lot of really knowing what the hell you're doing? Not really. Um, and actually, if you don't know what you're doing, winter is a great time to do it because we have less pest and disease problems. Because those things, yeah, yeah, they tend to be more active during hot, humid weather. Uh And winter is a great time if you're just getting started. Um, Lettuce is real quick. You know, you're from seed to harvest. It's three weeks. Radishes are the same. You know, I had no so idea. A, there's Only some quick weeks? things. Yeah, yep, three to four weeks. Depends and on the weather. And radishes, how long? Because I love radishes. Oh, radishes. Some some varieties of them, my favorite French breakfast, you want to eat them a little bit small. Two weeks. You put the seed in and you can be pulling them out and enjoying them. Oh so winter God. is a good time if you're nervous about getting started or maybe you want to try some new things. 
Give your winter and I guess garden cabbages a try. too, right? Because yeah. I know cabbage is such a New Year's Day yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. So that means it's a winter mm-hmm. crop. Yeah, it's a winter right? crop here. Um, green onions, very easy. I love green onions. You can get a pack of seed, put them in, and then you know a month or two later, you've got green onions. So. And you don't have to like put in fertilizer. And you do, yeah, yep. Um, see, I don't know anything there's about There's two fertilizer. routes you can go. Um, vegetables are heavy feeders. You think about how fast they grow. They're using a lot of resources kind of all ground. at once. Right. Yeah, and you can use either just a good quality compost, which is available at most garden centers, or just a balanced fertilizer. Um, we see 888 out there a lot. Um, you know, And we've got all that information, too, on our website in the Vegetable Planting Guide. Um, and it kind of breaks it down vegetable by vegetable exactly what their needs are and how much to put in there. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> I, I'm probably uh, not going to tomorrow turn into a vegetable yeah, right. farmer, but um, I, I would love to have some vegetables growing. It would mm-hmm. really, um, I mean, I have these huge banana plants. Mm-hmm. My husband mm-hmm. went crazy one year, and we bought all these uh, wild varieties from yeah. Stokes Tropicals. Yeah, you know, yeah. They have great uh, tropicals, and we bought Indonesian mm-hmm. and Brazilian, and 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 we really have had some huge banana crops. Yeah. And they, these are not ornamental; these no, are no, they're eating bananas, serious <laughs> yeah. eating bananas. Mm-hmm. And I am like a city girl from the Bronx originally, and thinking I have bananas mm-hmm. growing in my yard. And there's not that many places in the country where we can do that. So right? <laughs> yeah, it's really, yeah, but it's bananas re- really do. Uh, you know, they'll tolerate a frost. They might die completely back as i'm sure you're aware yeah but they'll be back they get kind of really scraggly right now <laughs> they do too, yeah. so mm-hmm. um so uh, you know that's another thing i mean we are subtropical not tropical that's correct so one of the implications of that is that we can get hit with a pretty cold spell mm-hmm. and like this november yeah is, out of nowhere <laughs> Then we were with this long, mm-hmm. hot fall, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden wham, yeah. we get hit with all this cold weather. Mm-hmm. So, And then when the cold weather hits and stuff just disappears it does, from yeah. your garden. Yep. That's kind of heartbreaking. On the mm-hmm. other hand, it really does pop back up, a lot of it. A Not of all it, of it, yeah. but a lot of it. A lot of it will, and especially the tropicals, they'll kind of melt. You know, you see them one day, and then it freezes, and then they're gone. Elephant ears. Elephant ears being a good Bam, example. gone. Yeah, yeah, but they will come back. A lot of those things um, that we use in the landscape that are more tropical have kind of a fleshy, tuberous root. So they have those stores of energy to fall back on. And that's why a lot that's of those things pop back. back right up. Oh, how so, interesting. Yeah, I'm ginger. learning so much today. <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs> I love it when I have a show where I just learn, learn, learn. Yeah. Um, Okay, so one of my favorites of all time, of course, I think most women would say this, are gardenias. Mm, mm-hmm. And um, I have mostly the gardenias that are a little bit smaller. They're yeah. still beautiful, mm-hmm. but the ones that I really love are in the family of, uh, of, a, of a gardenia called Mystery. Yes. But I find it hard to find it. Yeah, some of the older cultivars um, that have been out of trade for a while are very hard to find. That one's um, been out of trade? Yeah. Why on that's, earth? That's the thing mystery... about the nursery trade is it's all about the new stuff every year. So if there's so some new like cultivar, yeah, it's yeah. exactly like fashion. So things tend to cycle, um, you know, in and out of the marketplace. But you can usually find some of the older varieties um, at the smaller independent nurseries. That's a good place to check. Um, and then also you can start those things from cuttings. If you have a friend that has one, it's actually relatively easy to start a cutting this time of year. So. Okay, let's talk mm-hmm. about that for a minute because um, yep. that's another thing that I certainly have no idea how to do. Mm-hmm. So I know there's one mystery plant 
near the racetrack. Yeah. And I don't know the people mm-hmm. who own it, but I'm <laughs> okay. sure if I knocked on their door and said, could I have a cutting, they'd give it to me. Mm-hmm. But a cutting means what? It means taking the, the tip of the branch, so usually three, four inches, cutting it at a 45-degree angle. You remove most of the leaves except for the top two, and then you dip it in a rooting hormone. And you can actually buy that at Home Depot or any garden center um, where it's, it's a rooting hormone. It's a hormone that naturally occurs in the plant. And it stimulates that twig to actually grow roots. So there's a lot of information online about how to do it. So um, then, so then, as the roots now, I have, I have often taken um, gardenias from my garden mm-hmm. that I've cut. Yeah, just the gardenia itself, and I put it in water. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it just shrivels up and goes away, right. and sometimes it grows roots. Exactly, a lot of things will do that. Um, and then yeah. I, I think this year I actually caught a few of them before they, because um, sometimes you get the roots mm-hmm. and then if you don't t- do something with them, then it's going to die they out die. again. Yeah. But I did mm-hmm. get a few of them planted this year and we'll oh, see good. what happens. Yep. See, them. you're already doing it. Well, not me. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. Aria, my, my artist friend who uh, does a little bit, she's not a um, horticulturist mm-hmm. or, a, or a, a gardener. I can't seem to hold on to real bona fide. Gardeners, mm-hmm. my garden is kind of overwhelming. Yeah, they look yeah. at my place and they, I think they literally, you can sort of see their body mm. language <laughs> shift backwards. Oh, yeah. Because it's really kind of. It's a jungle. I really have, in a way, not only is it a jungle, but it's really sort of like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different gardens in mm. a way within. Within the space. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just such different. Mm-hmm. environments in different parts of it. So it, yeah. it's really pretty crazy. It's insane. But I looked out my window today and saw this whole field of of um, Chinese fan palms. So back to the palms for a minute because <laughs> yeah. we're, we're, we're going to run out of time uh, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And I, I've got what on earth – what on earth do I do with these palms? They They literally are all over the place. Mm-hmm. But – on the other hand, I'm really afraid to cut them because I keep hearing you shouldn't cut the fronds because it really just stresses the plant so much it endangers it. So, Well, with Chinese fan palm, um, that is true of some of our more delicate and uh, what I would say exotic palm species. Uh, there's We have a whole list of those as well. But the Chinese fan palms are really tough. And yours made it through that frost last year. Most of them, not Most all. of them, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And you can definitely prune them, and they're not going to be harmed in any way, shape, or form because they are just an aggressive, aggressive palm. And the fact that they're spawning all these babies everywhere is really kind of a demonstration of that. Is, is this a time to do it, though, or should I wait till the spring? You could do it now. It might be best to wait till spring because mm-hmm. any of those dead fronds are going to help protect and break that wind up there a little bit oh, more if yeah. we do get that chilling frost again like we right, did. Because a lot right. of folks lost palms last year. The queen palms really that. suffered. I saw so. that all over the city. Yep. It was like it was And they're still <laughs> out sad. there. There's still dead ones everywhere. So. I know why. Why have they yeah. left them? I don't know. It's it's expensive to take down a palm. Um, yeah, if you think about the how guys. they're different than a, a regular tree, they're very fibrous. You need kind of like heavy equipment to take them out in a lot of cases because they're heavy. They're full of water. They're just super dense and stringy. So yeah, one yeah. of my uh, the the patriarch of the entire garden, um, mm-hmm. this one plant that that I bought <laughs> when it was about. 
um, six inches high oh, no. from a dime <laughs> yeah. store. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just a teeny little thing, and I put it in the ground, and oh my god, that thing is above the house. Yeah, yep. <laughs> and, but it has a huge amount of dead palms mm-hmm. hanging off it. They're so high up mm-hmm. that really, I can't afford. Yeah. To yeah. cut them down. So what should I do? Because well, I'm worried. Aren't they hurting the plant to have all that no. dead stuff hanging off if, it? If you think about them in their natural environment, that's what they have in their natural environment. There's nobody out there, no arborist pruning or, or tending them. So what is their know. natural environment? Where do they come from? The Chinese fan palms? Mm-hmm. They come from Chinese the, yeah, <laughs> Chinese fan Hello. palms, so South China, <laughs> um, some of the more tropical areas of South China. Um, and, right. You know, they're not really, you know, cultivated there. They're just naturally occurring. So Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I see um, that we're coming up on the end of our time. So, Anna, I love having you. And um, yeah, thanks for having Come me. back um, as soon as you want, whenever okay. we have, like, a new story to tell. Maybe we should do something uh, just after the holidays to yeah. talk about what to do with all those poinsettias. Oh, and, yes. And so on that, you know, I, again, them. I've tried to plant those after <laughs> mm-hmm. Christmas with very limited success. Yes. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, thank and you. Um, thank you guys uh, who are out there listening. And um, we'll be back next week. And, uh, um, you know, the beginning of the holidays is here. So um, don't take any of that national horrible, horrible news that we keep hearing that um, I thought, you know, I, I listen to it and watch it like crazy. I just can't bring it to this show because I try with this show to be a part of the positive um, mm-hmm. part of our lives. So, Gene Nathan, Crosstown Conversations, and WBOK Real Talk, Real Times next week. Mm-hmm.